Acheron, The Demon King, by Morgan Huxley. Find more great stories at audioiron.com. Chapter 2 Margaret called Mary two days after the meeting, tension evident in her voice. I can't believe it. My book's been accepted. I'll be in print by the end of the year. Congratulations. Mary said, pleased by the news. Is it your book about Victorian dolls they've accepted? What will they do about all those photographs? They've made arrangements for me to work at the British Museum. I'll be setting off for London in a fortnight. There will be a professional photographer to help me, and all the dolls I could ask for. There was a catch in her voice. I'll be paid more than a year's salary for a summer's work. That's simply marvellous. There was a moment's silence as Mary wondered what to say next. Despite herself, her thoughts turned to the fires of Beltane. I know it's crazy, but I wonder if it's because of our ritual, she said. No, said Margaret sharply. I'm not letting a stack of wood and some physics take credit for my hard work. Oh right, said Mary, abashed. Of course. I'll be missing the next few meetings since I'll be in London, Margaret said. Of course, it's almost summer and it seems reasonable for us to take a break anyway. I certainly think so, lied Mary. She enjoyed their gatherings and she had never intended to take a break. But she knew her friends didn't take the meetings as seriously as she did. After a few moments of stilted dialogue, the conversation was finally over and Mary returned the house phone to its hook. She did think something more than hard work had helped Margaret. The woman had struggled for more than a decade without any reward or encouragement at all. The odd little ceremony had given her that extra push she needed to get the attention she deserved. Jane stopped by a little more than a week later. In her hands she carried a bag from the chemist and her normally implacable face was flushed. Even her waist-length blonde hair seemed disturbed as it floated about her in the open doorway. I'm going to have a baby, she said without preamble. A moment later she was crying, white bag dropping to the concrete of the porch as she reached for Mary. They say I shouldn't be able to tell yet, but I can. I took one of those tests and then I went to the doctor. It's impossible. The words became garbled, and her tears wouldn't stop. I'm so scared I don't want to tell anyone. Oh Jane, Mary said, holding her tightly. Then her own tears started to fall. Her friend's infertility had become a shared burden, and now that she was pregnant Mary found herself thinking that sometimes miracles do happen. The fires of Beltane, Jane whispered. I knew that evening, I knew it would happen. We made love. Releasing Mary, Jane wrapped her arms across her chest defensively. I'm so afraid I'll have to pay for this happiness, that somehow I've sold my soul to the devil for this chance. Dropping to her knees to pick up the pill bottles that had fallen from the small white bag, she brushed a hand across her face. I couldn't bear to lose this baby. I'm only two weeks along, hardly pregnant at all and yet I would do anything to keep it. Jane's character, made strong by so many years of patient acceptance, seemed to be disintegrating before Mary's eyes. Let's be sensible. Biology has far more to do with you being pregnant than Beltane does, Mary said. Taking Jane by the shoulders, Mary said, it was a game. Nothing more. Don't allow yourself to believe you have to pay a price for happiness you have earned. But what if we do? Asked Jane. Stepping back, into the sunlight on the front porch. Can't you see? We have been trying for so long. Maybe it was magic. Stop this nonsense, said Mary mustering a stern tone. 
I heard Margaret got her book published and I saw Elizabeth holding hands at the cinema with a young man on Sunday, said Jane. Don't you see? The fires of Beltane granted our wishes. We gave tokens. We've wished the same things for over a year. Sooner or later something had to give. Mary said, really wishing she thought that was true. Today, Jane's voice failed for a moment, I saw Lillian. She and Robert have purchased tickets to Rome. Turning to meet Mary's eyes, fear evident in every feature, she went on. I never saw two people more in love. You are overwrought. You are just going to have this baby and get on with your life. No one said anything about having to pay something more for these gifts. Despite her encouraging words, Mary was working hard to master her own surge of fear. David was leaving for Japan in just two days' time. A consulting contract had come up from out of the blue. It was a tremendous project for a company that had offices throughout Asia. We didn't ask questions, Jane said softly. Who knows what bargain we made? Don't be silly. If it makes you happy, I'll call Stuart in the next day or two and ask if there's anything we should worry about. In the meantime, you go home, take a nap, and stop worrying. If there is a price, I will pay it, Jane said as she wiped tears from her face. Don't tell him that I don't want the baby. I will sell my soul to the devil if that is the cost. Please stop saying such terrible things, said Mary. Please go call your husband and pretend to be a sane, happy, expectant mother if there is such a thing. Stepping forward, she took Jane into her arms and felt the tremors rack her thin body. I promise it will be all right, she said. Mary sent Jane home, wondering if she should be permitted to drive. Furious, frightened, she entered the house and left a message with Stuart's secretary. She learned he would be out of town until Friday, but would certainly return her call then. Forcing her mind to more practical matters, Mary started to pack David's bags. What did a man need for a month-long stay on the far side of the world? Your house is much easier to find in the daylight, Stuart offered from the doorway of her bright yellow barn. Reduced to silhouette by the late afternoon sun, he leaned against the door jamb as though he'd been there for hours. You were quite a hit, Mary said without looking up. Taking a few extra moments to smooth the vase she had on her pottery wheel, she eventually reached beneath the bench to turn its little electric motor off. She dipped her hands in the brown water nearby, then dried them on a soft towel. She turned to face him. It is just coincidence I'm sure, but all our Beltane wishes came true. Stuart didn't say anything. His eyes continued to explore the clay pots, plates, cups and masks that filled the barn. Jane believes that giving some beads to a fire got her pregnant. Stuart entered the barn, picked up an oversized coffee mug, slid his hands across the smooth green surface. She thinks she's sold her soul to the devil, or that you'll be coming by to demand the little finger of her right hand in payment. You make pretty pots, Stuart said as he placed the cup back on the table and took up a soup tureen. It's quite novel to see them whole and new. I usually find them in pieces you know. He paused, fingering the rounded edge of the tureen. Then he said, tell Jane it's all paid for. His eyes lifted to the masks that hung on hooks from the walls. Devils, angels, sons, kings, all stared back at him. He lifted one of the larger masks off the wall and studied it. That one has a story, she said. She was pleased that he had picked it out from among all the others. Still holding it, he turned to look at her. Really? I'm an orphan. I was raised by nuns. I guess I must have been lonely because I made up a friend. 
she stopped, remembering the hours she had spent wandering the grounds of the church and cloister. He used to visit me. We would talk and he would show me things. I thought he was an angel because he had big wings. An angel? said Stuart, staring at the mask. It was inhumanly handsome but for the fangs in its mouth and the horns on its head. It was all rather charming, apparently, until I learned how to draw. I showed the mother superior pictures of my friend and he turned out to be a demon, she laughed. I tried to explain he was an orphan angel the way I was an orphan girl. Do you still see him? asked Stuart with real interest. She shook her head. How odd that such a long ago event could still make her very sad. They told me to make him go away. I remember he said he would miss me very much. Why do you make masks? He asked as he returned her work to the wall. I don't know. I've always made them. It's what I do that people seem to like most, said Mary. I'm sure they are very popular, said Stuart. They remind me of other faces I've seen. Really? Mary asked. She was startled and somewhat disappointed. She had thought her masks were unique. She tried to give each one a complete personality within the context of a fixed expression. She had kings that wept, lions that laughed, suns that smiled, and moons that howled. Perhaps, one day, I can show them to you, he said. I'd like to know more about your brand of witchcraft, Mary said. Is there a way you can make that happen? Maybe, said Stuart as he turned toward her. Why would you want that? Why not? Mary countered, feeling a little defensive. She untied her clay-spattered apron and tossed it on the stool by the potting wheel. That's not a very interesting answer, Stuart replied. Why does anyone want to know magic? Mary asked. Who doesn't want to make wishes come true? Trying to hide her discomfort at expressing herself so candidly, Mary led the way out of the barn. She walked through the uncut grass to the back door and entered the kitchen. Holding the door open behind her, she waited for Stuart to enter. As he brushed past her there was a moment of intense physical awareness. He was taller than David, broader and more athletic. Once Stuart was inside, Mary let the kitchen door bang shut, then she turned to the stove and began boiling water for tea. What did you wish for? Stuart asked, seating himself on the far side of the kitchen table. Ah yes. Success for David. My fiancé, Mary supplied, wondering when she had told Stuart his name. Not much of a wish for you, Stuart said. I don't need anything that I don't already have, lied Mary. That's interesting, said Stuart. Most people want something, even if it's the impossible. Infinite wealth, eternal life, someone brought back from the dead. Mary shook her head. No, I don't want any of those things, she said. She stared at the steel teapot on the burner, doggedly waiting for it to sing. So, at twenty-four, how are you so complete? Complete? The question startled her. Normal people had families. Mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, a whole tree of humanity from which they hung. She had nothing like that. Other people don't have to make up demons to find a sense of belonging, she pointed out. She stole a glance at Stuart then. He was staring at the table as he leaned back in his chair. His dark hair was a little long and framed sculpted features. He looked more like a soldier than an archaeologist today. It was easy to imagine someone making a bust of his head one day, just as sculptors had modeled Roman and Greek warriors in centuries past. Maybe that was something she could do. She wondered if he would let her. 
I was left at St. Anne's as a newborn, she said after a time. The kettle whistled and she swiftly turned it off. The nun said it's not uncommon for young mothers to abandon their infants. Babies are a lot of trouble, I guess. She pulled plates and a tea cake from the cupboard and placed both on the table along with the teapot and cups. A moment later she sat across from Stuart, eyes lowered. I suppose that kind of thing leaves its mark. It's impossible not to search for meaning in this universe when your existence seems a product of chance. I would love to believe there are gods and goddesses that care anything about humans at all. You not only know of such creatures, you get them to do magic for you. Yes, said Stuart. We do. But, Mary, the answers you are looking for have a much higher price than a token thrown into a Beltane fire. Really? she asked. As a religion, aren't you always trying to find new members? You're thinking of someone else, he said with a smile. The nature of our secret society is that it is quite exclusive, Stuart said with a smile. So, if you want to learn more about us, you will have to become one of us. Is joining our society something you would be willing to do? Would you want me? She asked in surprise. Me specifically? Then she thought she understood. Oh, I see. You want me and my friends? No, only you, he said. We don't accept many female members, but we have a specific use for a young witch just now, and you will fit the bill. Why? She asked curiously. That's not something I can explain to someone who isn't one of our number, said Stuart firmly. What happens if I join then change my mind? Mary asked, taking a sip of the tea before her. She was startled to see how her hand shook as she held the teacup. She could hardly believe her ears. This handsome, intelligent, well-respected man was saying he had used magic to make wondrous things happen, and he was offering to teach her how to do magic as well. He and his group wanted her because she was special. It was madness, and yet Stuart seemed as sane and sober as a judge. Once you make an oath to us, it will be unbreakable. Our most immediate need is your participation in three rituals over the next couple of months. After that, it's conceivable that your involvement in our activities might end. But that is something we won't know for weeks. Whatever the society asks you to do, whenever we ask you to do it, you would have to comply. That is the oath we all take as members. If I agree to help you, said Mary, you promise you will teach me how to grant wishes as you did at Beltane. I want to be sure that is what you are offering. Stuart smiled. I am glad the bargain interests you. It does, Mary said. But I don't want to join a cult. Is that what we're talking about? Stuart shrugged and a smile flickered across his features. He rose from the table and carried his plate and cup to the sink. It's a long-running British society, rather like the Knights of the Garter, he said as he washed the items clean. If you want to accept our offer, you have to let me know in the next day or two. We'll have to make other arrangements if you decline. Can I have a list of your members? Mary asked as he walked toward the back door. I know almost nothing about you. Of course. I'll give you a short list of names. You'll find that they are all well-known respectable men. Scholars, business owners, high government officials. Members of the society prefer to remain strictly anonymous, but it's not an exaggeration to say we are some of the most influential people in the world. Pulling a silver pen from his pocket, he looked about for paper to write on. Mary rose and handed him the grocery list she kept on the refrigerator door. She watched as he began to write on the back. Feel free to call these numbers. Tell them who you are. They'll confirm they are members of the society, 
they will prove their identity, but they won't tell you anything more. And, if you happen to disclose the names on this list to anyone else, and here Stuart looked at her to be sure she understood, you can expect a run of extremely bad luck. Moments later he was gone, leaving Mary astonished and with a head full of questions. Voice recording and story copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music created by D. Kurtzman and licensed from Pond5. Find more great stories at audioiron.com.